0: Hey everybody, Tim, Bonnie, and Mike here. Welcome to the Vox Podcast. So thankful for you. Thank you for tuning in. And um, today, just quick quick update on everybody. People, I, I had a sweet listener uh, because I guess I've been doing hair updates every episode. <laughs> um, because it's, uh, you know, looking at, looking at my face is very underwhelming. And so when I see Bonnie or Tim, I'm like, man, Bonnie. So Bonnie's braided today
1: got braids going yep
0: now what kind of braid is that is that a french lick braid is that a a
1: pony keg braid it's a double dutch braid
0: oh nice is that in honor of the game
1: nope um i wear these braids when i go on long (laughs) runs the fact it's so overwhelmingly apparent to me that there, I'm explaining all these hair choices. <laughs> and the last time, somebody commented, I like how Erie messed up Bonnie's shower schedule, which tells me yep. we're really in it here, people. Yep,
0: yep. <laughs> well, there hasn't been... I mean, since Andy, we haven't had good hair to talk about. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I'm probably over overcompensating. But, okay, so double braid, and that's for running.
1: Mm-hmm. And then also because... In two days, when I take out the braid, it is this okay. main of awesome. Oh, I bet,
0: I bet. I wish we were recording two days from now.
1: I'll do it sometime when we're recording, so you can see it.
0: Is it so? Is that now? Do you do you wash it I w- after <laughs> the, it comes out of the braid? I mean, no. how does this? How I does this go it, into the wash schedule? I the, put wash the schedule. braid
1: in when it's wet.
0: Okay. And you so do then it, it has yourself. to dry.
1: I do it myself. So I did it last night. It's not okay. yet dry because it's so thick. So it'll take two days to dry.
0: Okay, okay. Uh, Tim, um, all, all I can say <laughs> is, all I can say is, I, I, the beard is so full. It's trimmed. Uh, I don't. I know, but it's. But there isn't a weak spot anywhere on your face. I mean, It. It, it just declares, I am fully man. Is what it, it declares. And the hair, show me the hair at the back of it because it's getting a little, a little long. I like it. I like it. All right.
1: Tim, you could do a braid with that.
0: Now, Tim, almost. Tim, did you wear your, uh, Tim is an adjunct professor, an English professor. So um, we'll, we'll call him Dr. Tim. And um, did you wear, <laughs> tell me, tell me you wore your tweed jacket, please. Please nope, tell cause me. Because it's that. like
2: 100 degrees.
0: But, bro, can't wear it no tweed. Listen. <laughs> The tweed is worn independently of the temperature. The tweed is about status. The tweed The tweed is not about about comfort. It's not about right? It's uh, just it just It's like and it has leather patches, correct, on the elbows? It does. But you know well, what? Come this, on. Is
2: how, this is how concerned I am with that. Yesterday I taught two classes and I left my sunglasses on my head the entire time. Well, so I'm just not I'm not I'm not quite there yet okay all right and the kids and the kids pulled up a picture of um, they said the you look kids. like chris the, the students, kids the students the kids did they brought up a, they said hey you look like chris pratt and i said oh okay and then they'd spun their computer around, and it was a picture of Chris Pratt from that passen, uh what was the movie called? Passengers, I think, or something like that, yeah. where he was out in space by himself, and his hair was, like, super long in his beard because he had been, like, lonely <laughs> and sad for a decade. That's
0: <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. Perfect, perfect. All right, uh, and, and then <clears throat> we had a, a sweet listener send me a bar of soap that doubles as shampoo.
3: Oh, Because okay. the thought of me
0: wasting shampoo on um on literally nothing it was too much to bear so your productivity
1: just went straight through the roof
0: seriously because it takes i mean i by the time i condition i don't know (laughs) it's a it's a long time all right anyway this is way too much on here i understand (laughs) that but it's fascinating to me problems i've not had ever um to to think but my daughter my daughter you know i mean i'm learning that like there's like there's intentionality that goes into hair and i i really haven't met anyone like bonnie who still uh as she's getting close to 40 is still i am not getting with, close to 40 as she's still wrestling with um you know some really hard hair hair choices so uh, anyway anyway, know,
1: this is quite the lens that you have so on the i'm gonna call it
0: bald <laughs> privilege is what i'm gonna call it <laughs> yeah
1: exactly
0: um i don't have to think about here but anyway okay um brothers and sisters today we have a very serious uh topic and a very um uh it was a it was a v- very sort of difficult book to read we're talking about sexual abuse mm. with a professor she was the dean at Duke Divinity School for a couple of years and uh, now she's and you'll hear about it in the interview she she started Something else called the neighborhood seminary, which is this cool sort of idea, but um, she writes as a sexual abuse survivor, but also um, has a kind of a theological lens. And 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 her big argument, which was super interesting to me, was um, when you read the Bible with abuse survivors, like there's a there's a necessary contribution. Um, that 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 those people will make to the way we understand some of these texts, mm-hmm. and and so she illustrates that through different yeah she's going through different passages. So anyway, it's super uh, it's super interesting, but but it's really um, compelling and but it's difficult. But it's difficult stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, Bonnie, what what kind of warning would you put on this one?
1: I would just say it probably could be pretty triggering, because. Um, She's bringing up, obviously she talks about um, sexual abuse, so I would say if you are a victim of sexual abuse, you might want to be careful listening. It could just bring a few things up, Um, but she also, we're going to be talking about sort of here in the outro, kind of like about what she said and sort of dissecting it, and I could imagine that for a lot of people it'd be a source of frustration that we're not like as a community of church believers farther along than we should be. So I just think holding some of that loosely and being prepared for that would be a good idea.
0: Yep. Uh, Anyway, brothers and sisters, here you go. This is Dr. Elaine Heath, and uh, uh, her new book is Healing the Wounds of Sexual Abuse. Hey, everybody. Mike Erie here. Welcome to the Vox Podcast. I'm uh, so glad that you are tuning in. Thanks. And we're grateful to be a part of uh, a small part of your life. I'm here with Dr. Elaine Heath, who was formerly Dean at Duke Divinity School and now is the president, right, at Neighborhood <laughs> Seminary, which sounds super interesting. I deliberately asked her to wait to tell me anything about it until we were recording, because this sounds super cool. So what's Neighborhood Seminary?
4: neighborhood seminary is in its third year now we started the pilot in 2016 and it's a two-year program for lay theological education to equip lay people for a contemplative life a a life that's deep uh, in its prayer and presence in the neighborhood and to equip them to use their gifts to be agents of transformation in their own neighborhood to lead
0: to flourishing whoa Yeah, that's a mission statement now. Holy (laughs) moly. Now that now now that's two ends of the spectrum. Right. A very prestigious uh, Divinity School post and and this. I mean, that that sounds super cool. Um, How do people find you in in that regard? Is there a website? Is there online? I mean, how does that work?
4: We have a website for Neighborhood Seminary. It's www.neighborhoodseminary.org. You can get basic information there, and you can contact us there. And um, I'm in the process right now of creating a website for myself that, that's for all of my speaking engagements and books and things like that. So I nice. expect that to be online within two months.
0: Okay. We're recording this in August. Fantastic. And in what caught my eye initially was um, a book that you had written called Healing the Wounds of Sexual Abuse. Reading the Bible with survivors. Now that that was um, obviously as a white male, I've served in um, various megachurch capacities as part of this whole thing, and was very interested on uh, the conversation you had started in in that regard. Before we get to that though, I'd love to hear. I mean, if you don't mind, I'd love to hear just a little bit about you and how you grew up. To when did you decide to become a doctor? of uh, of the, uh, theology, I guess right was that was that what your uh, doctorate was in, and uh, so kind of chart for us a course that way because you're also an ordained pastor as well, right? In the Methodist yes, Church, I am. okay.
4: Yeah, so I, I grew up in a, a not in a Christian home. Uh, mm-hmm. Our family was poor. We moved a lot. Our family was uh, suffered from addictions that were caused by my father's experience of what we would today call PTSD from World War II. Oh. And um, so the, so we all suffered this sort of aftermath of all of that as we were growing up. Uh, all of us kids left home when we were still kids and had to find our own way. I left home when I was 16 and still a junior in high school. Oh. So, so you, you can just imagine, uh, you know, with a background of violence and neglect and constantly being uprooted and changing schools, there were a lot of deficits there. Well, I came to faith in Christ that same year that I left home and I've always felt like Jesus came and snatched me from the bowels of hell, you know, Mm -hmm. and really, um, just loved Jesus passionately from the very beginning. So as time went by, um, I got married, I had uh, young children that I was raising and I was in the church, Mm -hmm. of course, still carrying a lot of, um, Shame within me, I, I would not be able to name it or articulate it until later on, but it it certainly um, shaped my life. Uh, shame from the, the experiences of abuse and neglect. And um, so when I was in my early 30s, I was living in Canada and I was going to a Pentecostal church and being mentored by an amazing woman named Betty Jevons. She discipled a lot of women and men. And um, she asked me to lead this discipleship group for women. I was terrified, but she sort of talked me into it. Mm -hmm. And it was in the process of leading this group for a year that I experienced God's call to ministry. Mm -hmm. Now, keep in mind, I barely had a high school degree. That in itself was a, a miracle that I ever graduated high school. Boy, no kidding. Yeah, I hadn't been to college. I had young children and a lot of obstacles in my path. But in these call experiences that I had, of course I was Pentecostal, you see visions and have dreams and you know, these things are what happens to Christians, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I accepted I accepted what was happening is from God. And so I had about two weeks of these experiences and I and I I saw in these visions and dreams and what was what I was experiencing that I had three parts to my call. One part was to ordained ministry, mm-hmm. which it was very difficult cult in those days in that denomination for a woman to be ordained. So that seemed like a crazy thing. Then there was a crazy part where I was going to have some sort of academic role where I'd be training people for ministry (laughs) in a school setting.
0: Oh, perfect.
4: (laughs) With me, you know, in my situation. And then the third part was the most uh, mystifying. Uh, I saw that I would be speaking to the church at large, that I would have some sort of speaking role where I would be, particularly calling the church in a mainline context. Of course, in those days, I didn't think mainline people were saved because that's what I was taught, you know. (laughs) Right, right. But I I was speaking to the mainline church and calling it to return to its first love. And Mm. I saw that that it would have fruit. There would be fruit for that. Okay, so after all these experiences where I thought I was losing my mind, I went to Betty and told her about it. And uh, she threw her head back and starts laughing. I was so amazed because she was kind of a sober person, you know. And she says, I saw it the day I met you. I went home and wrote about it in my journal, but I couldn't tell you. You experienced this for yourself. Now, I'd known her for three years by then. Wow. And so amazing. So she just kind of, she was like Yoda, the Jedi master or something. She (laughs) kind of gave me some (laughs) bullet points of things to keep in mind for the rest of my life. Like never seek the limelight, go where God sends you, but don't be full of yourself that ruins mm-hmm. people. And she said, never make your ministry all about the money that ruins people. So she was telling me all the things that ruin people not to do those things. And then she said, God will always give you a John the Baptist. God will always give you somebody to go ahead of you and invite and open the way for you. I just i just know that. So I have remembered all these things. Well, mm-hmm. not long after that, I found out I had to move from Canada back to the United States and it uprooted me from her and my support network. But that's when I realized I needed, now it's time to go to school. So I went to college, then I went to seminary and then I, so for like, it was like 40 years in the wilderness going to school, you know,
3: (laughs) but it was wonderful
4: to go to, you know, I went to school and um, all the time my children were growing up in school. I was also in a certain sense growing up in school and getting the education that I needed, and healing all along the way, healing, healing, healing from this stuff that happened as a child and a young adult. And um, so I knew from the time I had that call that being a professor was part of my call, that preaching was part of my call, that teaching the church at large was part of my call. Well, after I graduated from seminary, well, during my last year in seminary, I joined the United Methodist Church um, Mostly because I knew I wouldn't keep running into these gender barriers as a woman, mm-hmm. trying to answer this three four all, right? Right. So the United Methodist welcomed me and has always welcomed me. and um, I started serving pastor as a pastor of local churches and was ordained in the United Methodist Church. And I went to went through my PhD program. and right out of uh, as soon as I finished my PhD program, I had a job opportunity. Hmm. and then went on into teaching and left full-time pastoring and went on into teaching. Mm-hmm. So here we are all these years later. So this was, this was kind of in the early eighties when I experienced this call. And now here we are all these years later. And it was I, right. I'm ordained. I was right. I pastored churches. I've not only been a professor, but a Dean of a school. And now I've uh, founded a, a new school, a new kind of school for lay people. And I do, travel around the country and around the world speaking to the church
0: yeah. at
4: large and mostly mostly in mainline contexts but not entirely I also have opportunities and I'm privileged to serve in um, evangelical contexts at times so mm-hmm. that's that's what happened
0: wow and and if you don't mind what was the topic of your dissertation I'm just always I'm am a geek and so I love hearing this stuff oh sure what what pulled I wrote your my imagination
4: Phoebe Palmer. Phoebe Palmer is the mother of the 19th century Methodist Holiness Movement. And Mm. she was a lay person. She was actually a mystic in all the ways, the great Catholic mystics, Catherine of Siena, and all these different people that we celebrate. Phoebe was one of those people, but because Methodists did did not have a vocabulary and sort of a grammar for Christian mysticism for a variety of reasons, that side of who she was was not named or celebrated or honored. And in my dissertation, I began the work of celebrating naming and honoring that she was a Christian mystic and how her voice Mm. is really important for everybody in Wesleyan traditions today. Mm. So I wrote a book that's called Naked Faith, the Mystical Theology of Phoebe Palmer. Phoebe Uh led over 25,000 Christ in her date in her lifetime, hmm. and she was a spiritual guide, bishops and theologians, and here she was this laywoman with no formal theological
0: education. Right, right. I can yeah. see why that'd be appealing. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so, what as you as transitioning kind of to to the book, um, what what are you seeing as over the last three years? We've had the, the Me Too, the beginning of the Me Too movement, the We Too movement in the church. And um, how, just what are you seeing in culture that is very concerning for you, but also what are, what are things that you're seeing that give you a great deal of hope?
4: I think in culture, I see a sort of schizophrenia. On the mm. one hand, I'm very grateful for the Me Too movement the We Too movement, I'm very grateful for people like myself who are actually speaking up and saying, hey, uh, this has happened and it's wrong and we need to do something about it. We need to make the world a safer place for not only girls and women, but for for boys and men as well. Mm. And uh, so I'm thankful for that. And part of what's making that happen is social media, you know, that things Mm. go viral. at the same time, when I say that that I'm concerned because there's a schizophrenia going on here. At the same time, um, the, the the epidemic of internet bullying around mm. sexuality and, and violence against women and girls and against sexual minorities, the violence that goes on the internet and then causes suicides and all kinds of things, the um, the increasing uh, commodification of sexuality and sex mm. uh i mean it's always been there but it seems like it's becoming just an accepted part of mainstream culture and we make jokes Absolutely. about it and you know watch tv shows about it for fun and, and sex trafficking the trafficking of children all all of this is going on at the very same time and uh, and that concerns me so um And I'm concerned in the church, too, because we, in the church across the spectrum, from very conservative evangelicals to very progressive left-wing folk in all major Christian traditions, we lack uh, a good theology of sexuality. And so what we find in the church is this simultaneous um, fear and loathing of sexuality and deep obsession with it. And so... uh, and you know that shows up in all sorts of behaviors and troublesome events and so on so that's that, those are some things that i've been thinking about
0: yeah so uh, as a, as a a white guy um i i can't relate to what it, it must have been like for so many women to live with the reality or the fear of or whatever Uh, of this. I I just, it's mind blowing, which of course is the definition of privilege, right? I never had to worry about it. But um, when you, when you look at, when you look at how the church has been and speak for whatever aspect of the church that you're best familiar with, how has the church contributed to the mess? So, so one thing I'm hearing from you is we lack a robust or a healthy view of sexuality, um, I would for sure agree with that. But what, where else do you see, when we're talking about the wounds of sexual abuse, where else do you see the church complicit, either actively, because you give some horrific examples of some of the abuse that people have suffered at the hands of, quote, Christians, or passively? Mm-hmm. Um, what are the systems that are sort of complicit in the ongoing permission to have this be a part of church mm-hmm. culture?
4: There's a correlation between degree of patriarchy and degree of sexual abuse that goes on. Really? So the more patriarchal, yes, the more patriarchal a culture is, the more likely it is for women and children to be victimized, not only by sexual abuse, but by violence of other kinds. Hmm. Because in in a, well, whoever's in the position of privilege it's the constant message that they can have what they want and they can take what they want. I'm I'm saying it crudely, Mm
3: -hmm. but
4: that's what privilege. is. Like I, I am entitled to what I want Mm. and I'm entitled to hurt people again in my way. And I'm entitled, this sort of entitlement breeds all kinds of violence, Mm -hmm. whether it's uh, overt violence or subtle violence. (laughs) So, so the church, um, as it clings to, patriarchy as it clings to notions that God is indeed male, that Father, Son, and Spirit are all male. It's a trio of men, you know, a trio of males, Mm -hmm. and we're only going to use male language for God, and we're only going to ordain men, and we're only, you know, these sort of uh, social uh, constructs within the church, based upon a particular interpretation of Scripture that's certainly not universal. that contributes to violence against women and children, and ultimately, it contributes to a diminishing of men's uh, holistic health and well-being. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's not good for any of us when we have this sort of a view. So that's part of it. Um, part of how this gets played out in in the world, in the church, is um, we know we know that sexual abuse happens across all social strata, it happens across all economic lines, across races and so on. But what will happen is um, a pastor or a lay leader of some kind, the youth pastor, the you know, the scout leader where they meet in the churches, whoever it is, um, someone comes forward and says, uh, this is what happened to me and pastor did it or the youth pastor did this or the choir director, whoever it was, and Uh, the congregation or other leaders can't imagine that happening. Oh, no, Pastor Bill wouldn't do that. We can't imagine it. And so they immediately blame the victim uh, or don't believe them or shame them or cover it up or tell the person to leave, the person who's been victimized, and cover it up. Or it's a terrible embarrassment. We're not going to talk about this. We can't imagine it. And part of the reason we can't imagine it is we're not doing our homework. <laughs> we're not learning about things. It's not considered important in our church's leadership training or any of that. Mm. And so uh, so then it multiplies the wounds and uh, makes it much more likely that more abuse is going to go on. Yeah, the cover-ups, the, um, the patriarchy, the lack of valuing women and children, mm. uh, all of these play a role in it.
0: Hmm. How how does the church move from um being complicit in in those ways to being a, a refuge for people? I mean, what are the? It, we have a number of folks in vocational ministry who listen. What if somebody comes forward? What what do you recommend? How how should the church react? How should the church process these things and fact find and do whatever the church is going to do? What's that look like?
4: Well, the first rule is when someone comes forward to disclose abuse, always believe them. Hmm. Uh, I mean, communicate to them, I hear you. I'm so sorry that you experienced this. I'm so sorry. Nobody deserves to experience what you just described. And how can I help? Hmm. So that's the first thing that you do. It takes enormous courage for someone to disclose they've experienced abuse. Mm. It's humiliating and shameful. And you can imagine in a religious environment to go to your pastor or to go to your Sunday school teacher and say, I experienced this is um, very difficult. And most people, the majority of people who've been sexually abused, never disclose it to someone in authority.
0: Mm. So
4: the, the number of reported cases is actually only a fraction of the actual episodes or people Mm -hmm. that are victimized so that's the first thing that you do Um, it's always good for a local church on a regular basis maybe um, once a month once a year or every two years i think once a year is a good idea to have someone come to the church from the domestic violence shelter Mm -hmm. someone or a therapist has training in recovery from domestic violence and sexual abuse those, mm. those are two different things but related in some ways mm. and oftentimes the victim of one is also the victim of the other it's just mm. the way things work uh, but have someone with professional training who's a competent speaker come and give a talk they can give a talk during the sunday uh, worship hour that's a really good idea um, you can always excuse the children to go to a special program that morning yeah. if you want people yeah. to under. but the adults need to hear from the pulpit about this at least once a year, and yeah. having a professional come and talk about it, and she or he can give you uh, seven or eight things or ten things, they can have a handout for you to help educate the congregation, then um, that person can also Come alongside to the church board and offer a consultancy to help you know what resources are available in your community. Mm. Um, How does one help someone connect to a safe house? Uh, What are the laws about required uh, mandated reporting for a minor who discloses abuse? There are laws in every state about this. Um, uh, What do you do when the person who's being when the perpetrator of the violence now starts stalking you the pastor mm. <laughs> and threatening you mm. with violence these are things that actually happen mm. way more than people realize so having some mental health professionals with the training in this area who can be a an asset to your church and people are happy to come and help yeah uh, i've had folks from the battered person's shelter come to churches that i pastored and do some training Then there are things that they'll recommend to you, like in the restrooms, uh, stalls in your bathroom, in your church, on the inside of the door, the stalls, you can have a little poster there that has information, um, what to do if you've experienced harassment, if you've experienced violence, you can call this number. And there's even little pockets where you can put business cards. A person can take a card and stick it in their purse or their pocket. Hmm. And so there are a variety of things like that. There are curriculum that you can get, I think, from Faith Trust Institute that you can use with your um, middle school and high school students in your church hmm. to prevent date rape and you know what do you do if something like this is happening or mm-hmm. to help kids have courage to get some help if they're being incested. I mean, there are, there are resources that can be used within the church. Oh. Then the other thing is um, having creating space in the church to actually teach a healthy theology of human sexuality can go a long way to help people, um, uh, respect themselves and other people's bodies.
0: Yeah. Yeah, And so many, at least of the churches I've led and have been a part of, I don't, I don't know that we ever had a conversation on abuse or violence, um, in the, in, in a a marital or non-marital context. So, I mean, I, that's, mm-hmm. I think that's really good stuff. Um, when you get to like one of the, one of the things, this paragraph just wrecked me because I have a 14 year old girl and she's just, she's on her third day in high school. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and let's see, it was page 108. I'm going to read you your words and then have you comment on them. <laughs> Because I'm going to add, because what I want to do is, I want to ask you, how do I talk to my daughter um, <laughs> uh, about this? So um, you, you quote uh, Mary Pfeiffer, uh, Reviving Ophelia, mm-hmm. and uh, Pfeiffer calls girls saplings in the storm because of the many forces arrayed against them as they move from the freedom and adventure of childhood through puberty into a world where they will be judged on their sexual appeal. Twelve years of age, the symbolic age of puberty, is the threshold where far too many girls split into a false self, one that is determined by the sexually abusive culture of our day. And then one more sentence. I mean, I was wrecked. I was just absolutely wrecked. Uh, Pressured to deny most of their gifts and abilities, faced with an adult future determined by sexism and many other dehumanizing isms, Many girls slide into a long, slow depression in which they increasingly distort and deny their own selfhood, and then uh, you go on from there. And at that point, I was, you know, circling and underlining and writing my daughter's name in the in the pages and saying, "Okay, I really, just personally, as a dad, um, yeah, yeah. how do you how do you how do you talk to?" Um, so, so yes, I, the church has to be the safest place to talk about anything, right? It should be. So how do you have a it conversation like? Yeah, it should be. How do you have a conversation like this um, with, uh, with a with a fourteen year old?
4: Well, I have two daughters myself. Of course, they're adults now, but I, I had fourteen year old daughters at one time. You know,
0: you know. And I was I know. a seminary
4: student. When they were, yeah, when they were fourteen, <laughs> I was in seminary, and I had already done a lot of my own healing work, so I was much more aware of like I knew the statistics then. Uh, hmm. and, and all of that. Um, so our daughters need from us, particularly from their fathers, need to know that they are deeply loved, hmm. that they are awesome just the way they are, that you uh, appreciate their intelligence, they're uniquely gifted by God, and that that God has wonderful uh, dreams for them. We want our daughters, when they're growing up, to see themselves as whole persons. And this is the thing that, that splits at puberty, which Mary Pfeiffer has talked about in very compelling ways. So when our girls get to junior high school, and you know they go through puberty, and now there's all this pressure to look a certain way, we want them to be as confident as possible in themselves as human beings.
3: Mm-hmm
4: and um, provide for them uh, experiences where they can they can test out their gifts and they can they Mm. part part of adolescence is trying on different selves Mm. (laughs) I mean that's just a normal part of adolescent you know what how how am I going to be in the world and kids will try out different ways of being in the world Um, but this is why having access to sports to music to whatever uh, mm. kind of interesting things, give them a chance to try these different things. And <clears throat> I, I think I wrote in the book about when my daughter's Barbie dolls melted down because they put nail polish remover on. <laughs> so, yeah. So I tried with my own kids to, um, to affirm and accept their desire to look pretty you know i mean i, I wanted to look nice too right
0: mm-hmm. everybody
4: wants to look okay but i also uh, really encourage them toward academic excellence to think about going to very good schools and mm-hmm. to do a superb job with the gifts they had and you know it was i love my girls and they did well but it was just normal kids you know so yeah uh <coughs> so in particular, um, the STEM disciplines, science, mm-hmm. technology, engineering, and math, women are vastly underrepresented there precisely because of what Mary Pfeiffer is talking about. Mm. So if your daughter shows any aptitude at all in, in any of the STEM disciplines, really encourage and help her help mm-hmm. her to have opportunities to go to um, space camp or to whatever it is that she's really interested in yeah. and help her to, the courage to do what she feels called to do. In the church, we could do so much to to make this better for kids, hmm. and we can do it from a theological perspective. If we just think about, I, I forgot, um, Mike. What is your tradition that you're in? Theologically,
0: Not, non-denominational. I, I barely Non-denom- hold on. Yes, I barely hold on to the evangelical label because I feel so abandoned okay. by my my tribe. <laughs>
4: It I get it, um, so but I'm sure you all love the Bible a lot and use the Bible, and you can talk about this from a scriptural standpoint. Mm-hmm. That, um, that in Paul's writing in First Corinthians and in Romans and elsewhere, he talks about the gifts that every believer is given, gifts the Holy Spirit gives every believer gifts, and there are lists of gifts, and it says that the Spirit gives the gifts to anyone according to the Spirit's will. It's not a human preference. Mm-hmm. And we have examples in the New Testament, actually in the Old Testament too, of women as leaders, of women as prophets, women doing all the different ministry skills. It's not just for the men. Right. So what that tells me, and this is my own theology, that those are not comprehensive lists of gifts. There are other mm-hmm. gifts too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Those were just the main, Paul was laying, laying forth. So we can make a good argument from scripture that we are doing a disservice to our young people, our kids in the church, if we're not teaching them from childhood on that they each have unique gifts and life calls and that we want to fan those gifts into flame, whether it's the gift of engineering, it's the gift of teaching, it's the gift of being a a physician, it's the gift of uh, working in a nonprofit that brings peace to the world, whatever these gifts are, we want to mm-hmm. fan those into flame because. In the words of uh, Saint. Irenaeus, who's one of the early major theologians of the church, the glory of God, he said, is a man fully alive, but he meant a human fully alive.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
4: And so if we want the glory of God to be fully of life, fully alive in and through our kids, We're going to help them flourish with their gifts. Hmm. So teaching that to our kids and then celebrating our kids for their different gifts in the church, uh, whatever their gifts might be, that can help us with this.
0: Yeah. So that, so part of it is she sees herself as a whole person and not how, but Mm -hmm. how do we, how do we navigate (coughs) the, the schizophrenic waters? So on the church side, I get that, and I don't, I'm egalitarian. And so I don't, um, I don't teach my daughter that she's restricted in any way from her capacities in exercising those gifts in church. And, and, um, and, and, you know, we're trying to present a view of of sexuality that is a lot different from the one we received um, through the evangelical Mm -hmm. subculture. But as she encounters the world now, and um, and that's the part where I see her just being torn apart, right? I mean, it's it's she's so judged. I mean, and I and, and and we talk about almost all the boys she's encountering are drenched in porn and have certain ideals of body image and and women and their permissiveness and and so on and so on and so on. Um, how do you bring? How do you how do you navigate that? I'm just, I'm still, I'm still flummoxed. We talk about it a lot, but as I was reading your book, I was thinking, mm-hmm. oh my goodness, this, I really wanted to ask you because, um, mm-hmm. because of what you've seen and uh, you know, so not just avoiding the, the places where that abuse could happen, but how do you present a positive um, mm-hmm. uh, view of femininity you know, and that there just aren't a lot of theological resources for that in in my in my tradition. You know, it's it's very much uh complementarian. Um, guys are kind of at the heads of the table, sort of thing. And so, right. Right. and so, one of the interesting things that you do with this, so so you you talk about your books grounded in two commitments. The Bible can be a powerful source of healing for survivors, and and that. I I would imagine my initial, when I first read that, I was like, well, seeing as how the Bible's been used to justify so much abuse, that's going to take some, that's going to take some telling. And then the second commitment was survivors who are healing have essential wisdom that the church needs. So, so let's talk. So, so you make a, you know, compelling case about this. Um, So let's start with how do we begin to see the Bible, uh, especially if it's been used uh, to justify the abuse. I mean, just today, something came across my Twitter feed where a youth pastor was quoting the Bible as he was molesting young boys. And I'm, I'm just like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, I, I can't even imagine. But how do you redeem the Bible in those t- sort of situations?
4: It's how you read the Bible. Uh, whose lenses are you wearing, right?
3: Mm-hmm,
4: mm-hmm. And I mean, that <clears throat> that's why I wrote this book was to give a different set of lenses. And I've I've within the book I have a lot of footnotes and so on. And I've named a bunch of different theologians that you could read that provide a uh, what liberation theology calls a reading from below. Mm. So instead of reading from the dominant group that has all the power and feels entitled, you're reading from the perspective of everybody else that's down here at the bottom of right. the power pyramid. Right which is a very faithful thing to do if you follow Jesus because that's where Jesus when Jesus comes into the world he comes into the people who are at the bottom of the power pyramid and identifies mm-hmm. with them. Mm-hmm. That right there should stop us in our tracks and make yeah. us question everything thought and done for the last 2000 years, right? <laughs> especially especially yeah. the church right now in the United States, especially I'll just say it, the Evangelical Church, um, which is aligning itself with a particular political view, uh, where, where there's documented violence against women, and, mm-hmm. uh, and seems to be okay with that. That's a problem. Mm. But, so, so, wisdom is knowledge gained through suffering and through experience. Hmm. Wisdom is different from knowledge. Wisdom is life knowledge that's transformational, that is holistic. It's the whole person. And so if we want to have wisdom, which is a biblical value, right? Absolutely. We've got something called literature, which is a whole category of the Bible, the wisdom literature. If we want to have deep spiritual wisdom, we need to listen to people who can pass on their wisdom to us? People who have learned through suffering and through experience, and um, people who've been abused, neglected, violated, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. especially the ones that has been done to them while somebody's quoting scripture at them. Yeah. When people who are in that situation are healing well, wisdom forms that can help all of us do a much better job in our leadership, a much better job in biblical interpretation and a much, much better job of evangelism.
3: Hmm.
4: Hmm. So, so, um, so that's why I wrote this book and that's why I gave the particular examples. There are many other examples I could have included in the book. I didn't focus on people who are, are stuck somewhere and are permanently stuck. Although I, I know people like that and Mm-hmm. Who can blame people for getting stuck, right, mm-hmm. when they've been raped by the pastor or they've had these other things happen yeah. to them?
0: Yeah.
4: But all right. of us. This is why, um, you know, in the in the world of theological education, there's a major uh, challenge right now. A major shift going on. The center of Christianity is no longer Europe. It's no longer white German guys. It's no longer the United States. The, center of Christianity is in the global south and the global east Mm. and so the rising theological voices that are going to shape Christianity for hundreds and hundreds of years to come are coming from Brazil and Kenya and places Mm -hmm. like that of places that have been marginalized by the white northern eurocentric church right Mm. and we need their wisdom there, if we're going to be at all effective as church into the future, right, right here in North America, mm. there's a fantastic book that came out last year by Wes Granberg-Michelson, who's coming out of the Reformed Church in America, and it's called Future, uh, future Church. Mm. And he charts out, I think, 10 different, 10 different things for the church in the United States to learn from the global church right now, that we need to mm. learn right now
3: mm. if we're
4: going to be an effective church in the future. Mm -hmm. So um, the voices that I've included in my book, some of them indeed are from marginalized uh, Mm -hmm. ethnically or uh, racially marginalized cultures, but they're all from people who've been marginalized by sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And so the wisdom that comes from them is wisdom that we
0: need. Right. And what what you do is you'll take a story that's like the Ethiopian eunuch, right, which... You know, um, I've never read from the eunuch's perspective. I've always read it from the apostolic perspective. Um, or, mm-hmm. you know, Adam and Eve as people who were sinned against uh, by the serpent uh, before they sinned, you know, kind of thing. So so what's your... What's your so, and then you combine that with the stories of real people who are trying to find themselves. So, So your argument seems to be at least one piece of it seems to be, hey, there's a lot here that survivors can find healing in, resonate with, because God is, Mm -hmm. I mean, and and, and you had a very particular passage come alive to you that really began, you know, tell tell us about that. I mean, that was a pretty powerful story.
4: Yeah, I was um, doing some work with the parable of, uh, well, it was the The sheep and the goats, and it was the least of these. Where Jesus says, "Whatever you've Mm -hmm. done to the least of these, you've done to me." And I, I didn't have enough Greek facility yet (laughs) at that point in my education, so I was wrestling with the footnotes in the Bible and wondering, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, "Who are the least of these? Do they have to be male?" That question Mm -hmm. came to me. Do they have to be brothers? Do sisters Mm -hmm. count? What if they're children? Do children count? Mm -hmm. And so I started as well, like. I felt like Abraham, like, well, what if it's 12 people? What if it's 10 people? You know, kind mm-hmm, of like, mm-hmm. So like, who counts Who counts in this teaching of Jesus? Who are the least of these? And I was wrestling with this, and I started um, thinking about, at the time I lived in the Metro Detroit area, and I had mm-hmm. quite a few friends from inner city in Detroit that I had made, I, we'd become friends through seminary. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about visiting them in their homes and how I would go by little neighborhood grocery stores with bars on the window and the produce was bad. And it was just a different different experience than me going to the supermarket and getting my groceries. You know, And I was thinking about all of the, the people that I would see downtown and who were suffering. And I wondered, well, aren't they the least of these? And I was just thinking of stories in the newspaper and things. And while I was kind of going through this sort of mental exercise of wondering who are the least of these, right right in the middle of that, I suddenly had a wave of memory of my, uh, one of my experiences of being sexually abused as a child. Mm. And it was by a man, an old man, who was a deacon in his church. He was one of the lay leaders of his church. It was a conservative church. And he was a neighbor of ours. And I, I saw it happening the way flashbacks happen. but I saw Jesus with me and in me, even though my family were not Christians and I went to Sunday school sporadically if somebody took me. I, I, I had this overwhelming experience, a, a deep knowing that Jesus was with me and in, we, in me. I was never alone when these things happened. Mm. That in fact, I was one of the least of these. It blew my mind. Like, I was one of the least of these. Jesus was with me. I wasn't alone. And then I realized every person who's vulnerable, who's marginalized, who's under the oppressive power of others, every person, regardless of what the circumstance is, it's not about whether they can say, I'm a brother of Jesus, and they say the right set of words. It's about their vulnerability that Jesus fully identifies with people in their vulnerable condition the people mm-hmm. in the margins, the people that are at the bottom of the power pyramid. That's mm-hmm. where Jesus identified. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't—I had not read liberation theology yet, and I didn't know there was a name for that. It's called the preferential option for the poor. Mm-hmm. There's been a name given to that. Mm-hmm. But I experienced it in my body, in my mind, in my emotions, and that became a major pivot point for me mm-hmm. in my experience of God and ultimately in how my theology developed um, and I went to an evangelical seminary. It was, a, mm-hmm. it was a, a, so helpful to me. I loved my education there and found it to be a place that was very supportive of me and my call. But that's, that's how that happened. And that, mm-hmm. um, the meaning of that story, that parable, and how I experienced it continues to shape my theology.
0: Yeah. Well, and, that, and, it, and it gives a picture of what the book's trying to accomplish, um yeah. for those who are the least of of yeah. these to see themselves that way and to see Jesus with them. So no, it's <laughs> really good. if just one last question um if if someone's listening to this and they're in a, an abusive relationship or they are being uh in, in some way or other sexually exploited and um what what counsel do you give? give to young women in particular um, who find themselves in these situations?
4: First, that God loves you more than you know. Second, God does not, it's not God's desire for you to be abused, Hmm. neglected, trafficked. It is not God's desire for you. It's not God's will. It is God's will for you to be free, to be whole, to have a life, to experience joy, and God is working with you and for you to set you free, you will need to cooperate with God for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Then I mm-hmm. would also try to point people toward resources that are immediately in their area that can help them, whether it's mm-hmm. a safe house, a domestic violence shelter, a rape crisis hotline, or um, sometimes it's a therapist. I Wherever I've lived, I've tried to make sure I know where there are two or three therapists who specialize in Mm. recovery from sexual abuse, domestic violence, so that if anyone discloses to me, I can easily say, well, this is a person with special training that you can go talk to. Mm. So I would hopefully um, be able to give the person that information. A couple of other things that can be helpful in evangelical contexts in particular um, it can be very scary for a woman in particular to say, I, I'm being um, beaten or I'm experiencing um, mm. domestic violence in my home, different kinds. I don't know what to do. I don't want to um, forsake God or something. There's an organization called Christians for Biblical Equality International, mm. CBE International. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You can Google have lots of resources that can be helpful, theological and practical resources to help you work through your thoughts about all this, because for people who are deeply grounded spiritually, they, you know, it's not a light thing to challenge Mm -hmm. the inherited system, even when it's violent against you. Um, Then there's another another organization called Faith Trust Institute. It's a faith-based organization to help with, um, uh, preventing and healing sexual abuse against women and children in particular. And so you can also Google Faith Trust Institute and find Mm. resources there that can help you.
0: Excellent. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. Dr. Heath, and I appreciate your time today. Thank you for, for this. Thank you for this conversation. Many blessings upon you. Are you at all on social media?
4: I have a Facebook account. Yeah, I, I don't use Twitter. I don't use yeah. Twitter.
0: Well, yeah, yeah it's, Just, that's that's hit I or miss. Should, I
4: guess, but
0: yeah, this sounds <laughs> hey sounds great. Thank you again for your time. I very much appreciate it. All right,
4: you're welcome.
0: Okay, guys, um, what'd you think? What were what were some of your thoughts as you were listening to that?
2: It was very heavy. I wrote notes this time. You did? Yeah, because I really well, you... wanted to make sure that I said back the things that she said correctly. But one of the things that, the first thing that really struck me was when she said, we lack a good theology of sexuality. Yeah. And what that leads to is a deep fear and obsession simultaneously of sexuality. And I yes. thought that was like, that was, that was a lot of what she talked about in that show. But I feel like, man, that was like a lot of the church like as we've been talking about the purity movement and all that kind of stuff that like was a nutshell that kind of wrapped up how I've have felt about this topic with the church for a long time there's a weird fear and obsession with it that mm-hmm. has yeah. made a very unhealthy culture for a long time
0: mhm mhm no that's exactly right and and we didn't get a chance to talk about um what a theology of sexuality would look like yeah. um although that i i've got some fodder for some future episodes, um, Nadia, uh, what's her last name? Bonnie Nadia bowles Weber. Yeah, wrote mm-hmm. yeah. a book called Shameless. Have you read this yet?
1: I haven't read it. I've just heard about it. Mm-mm.
0: So yeah, it's it. She she kind of presents a new vision for sexuality that um, uh, will provoke responses, to say the least. But you're but I I love uh, I'm with you Tim in, in the sense that I, I think you're mm-hmm. absolutely right. And I wonder. I I mean, obviously, sinful human beings have always existed and will exist, uh, you know, for the time being. But but, um, how much bad teaching on sexuality, on gender, whatever, has led to this? Like, like I, I I just wonder. In a hypothetical world, had there been a much healthier teaching on this. On the way men and women should relate you know blah 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 how much of the current crisis could have been avoided versus how much of it would have happened no matter what yeah you know what it's what I'm bad, saying? bad
2: teaching and lack of teaching on the topic for me i think like i this is sexuality is not something that was really talked about from the pulpit i think you were the first pastor i ever heard talk about sex from the pulpit and i was like what's he talking about oh my god like i couldn't believe it i think there's a weird we have such a shame culture around the topic of sex that it just becomes such a you know a a solitary conversation or an isolated conversation Mm -hmm. so i think like just even opening up the conversation to to make it a safe thing to talk about would make a huge difference in Mm -hmm. the church culture i think Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no no question
1: i mean i i totally agree i think there it definitely because it's either never talked about like you said or or in a bad way, but to her point, something that she said again and again, that I think we really can't miss is that the lens of how we read the scripture and how we preach the scripture has been skewed, um, in favor of like a patriarchal society. And like what she said, was she said, like when she said the more patriarchal culture is, the more likely it is that women and children are more likely to be taken advantage of. Mm. And, um, I don't know if you are actually surprised or if you're just kind of going with what you said, but your response when you said that to her is ear you sounded surprised by that. Um, but to me, that made total sense when she said that because um, what she said, like, I don't know, we, when we have a culture that is like skewed to pa- patriarchy and then when all we talk about is in male pronouns or, and we view it from, from that lens, it makes sense to me that we are, we are literally growing up generations of people that think they're in charge or that feel privileged and like what she said, can take what they want when they want it.
0: Yeah, no, I, um, I wasn't surprised and, and no, no, but, but I was trying, I was trying to lead her to that point because it's a point she makes in her book about so those so so the way i prep sometimes for interviews is i'm like oh this needs to come out in the interview
1: right but I'll you not try to, to say it, it. Yeah. yes
0: yes yeah i don't I, the worst is when i'm quoting the book back
1: right you know? right right
0: um i i hate doing that but um but i wanted to so i wrote a question specifically designed to get to that point so yeah. that so my reaction I think was just more like okay, good. That's I'm glad. Right, right. I'm glad we glad we went there. Mm-hmm. And um, and so yeah, yeah, I I as I've grown into more sort of egalitarian theology or whatever, um, I I definitely have seen how it, it some of that some of the, the 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 theology that's been out there not contributes legitimatizes now Mm -hmm. that's not to say there aren't abuses of every single piece of theology ever of course right um but you know when we're when we're as a culture waking up to the carnage i mean we can't it, it is impossible for me as a as a man to appreciate the scope and the depth and the breadth of the the carnage that has, has and, and it's only what's been reported so far. I mean, just imagine let's say that's ten percent of the iceberg. Good lord. Right. You know what I mean? I mean it's it's just and and some of the examples of of stuff she's writing in her book, I mean you're you're just like I again, that's the definition of privilege, right? I never had to think of that.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: now that I have a daughter and I have to I have to talk to her about getting roofied, and I have to talk to her about um uh Date rape culture and um, the fact that the boys she's talking with are all drenched in porn,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and we'll have mm-hmm. expectations. I mean, it's it's it's, I like I've just never seen it like I'm seeing it. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And it's just it's horrific. It's absolutely horrific. Yeah. So um, anyway, Bonnie, what what else did you what else well, did I you th- notice? I thought I thought that was a big point. The one. Yeah, that I thought that was up, a good absolutely.
1: one. Um, I was actually wanted to pose the question because I ran into this in some of my translating, which I'll get back to. But I wanted to pose the question, is how you feel about what she said, but all, like she brought it up, but about God. Um, if we ever talk about God in the feminine, mm-hmm. I see that a lot. And I, I'm just curious what you guys think of that.
0: Okay. In terms of how <laughs> how I feel theologically? <laughs> yes. About yes.
1: It? Yeah, or just like in general. Like I'm because so for example, like I know where I stand theologically speaking. But and, and but I also see why it would be important to like tell the truth about these things if that makes sense. So I would just want to open up the dialogue about that because if you're like me, which people listening probably are, you see this a lot. Like people referring to God as a woman or spirit as a woman and going like what what do we think of that like is it helpful is it not helpful is that Mm -hmm. okay you know Mm -hmm. just i don't know i want to just be able we're a podcast that talks about anything so i just want to throw that out there
0: oh man all right tim you go first (laughs) 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 i remember uh, english professor
2: when i was in college the first time in the early 2000s i was at a very um conservative christian school and during one of our we would have we were on worship teams and during the we would have to go to like a worship team chapel it's just the worship teams and somebody would speak and this woman who was a professor there got up and taught about god as a woman um and it like triggered a lot of people and then she was fired uh shortly thereafter for bringing that topic up but i remember thinking i was like well i don't know that i I don't know what I think of God and the gender thing. I don't even know if I had thought about God and gender. We do the him and the whatever, but there are definitely some feminine, motherly qualities to a lot of the things that God does. So mm-hmm. I've never had a hard time with, uh, you know, I don't know that I would, I don't know. I don't know. But I, I've definitely like toiled around with that. It, it doesn't make me, if God was a woman, if that came out, if that was a thing, I wouldn't be like, oh no. Would <laughs> be like, oh, okay, I don't know, you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh no, oh, oh I enjoyed. Those. I don't those know responses.
0: if any of that made any sense. I'm sorry. No, perfect. Um, that's a great question, Bonnie. So, so theologically, I would start with the undifferentiated Adam in Genesis one, mm-hmm. and I've come to more lean towards the idea that that the adam was not a gendered male until the the male and female became two distinct entities right in other words uh and well this was new for me Mm -hmm. um because i always thought that that adam was a gendered male Mm -hmm. and then you and then you're realizing no adam was used as kind of a generic term for a human um and so so when it says that he made them in his image male and female he made them well duh i mean in fact, there's one scholar who I I really respect, and a lot of other, uh, in a lot of other work, who makes this argument that the us, when in Genesis 126, when God says, "Let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness," there's always been a big conversation about what what's the plural referring to there. Who's the yeah. us? Who is that? And um, you know, initially. I was taught that referred to the Trinity, which I don't believe that. Um, or the heavenly council, which is kind of where I'm at now. But this scholar makes the idea that, or makes the argument, and again, because I respect him in so many other places, I at least take this seriously, even though I know nothing if this is if true or not. But he makes the argument that the us that's being referred to there is the male and female aspects of God. Mm-hmm. And um, that that usness is being um uh represented now by a male and a female. Um, yeah. It, it, so so God is an us, so he creates humans mm-hmm. to be uses, is the kind of the idea. And I thought, oh, that's I, right. I don't know if that's right, but that's super interesting. And all of that leads then to the inevitable conclusion. Um speaking like the guy from the Matrix, um <laughs> thereby <laughs> that the architect um, that, that, uh, that feminine expressions of God's nature are, are not only to be welcomed, um, mm-hmm. and to be, but they're to be highlighted because they're so often not highlighted. So when, yeah. when like the, the Hebrew word Shaddai um, from the famous Amy Grant song, um, right. El Shaddai, Absolutely. That's, um, that's, that's where it was from, right. That's an incredibly <laughs> feminine yeah. image. Um, of God, uh, or when Jesus talks about you know wanting to as like a mother hen, um, you know to yeah. gather Jerusalem under his wings. Um, I mean, those are just two very obvious sort of common examples. the The issue that I sometimes have is when people make that argument just for the sake of shock value, right? Or um, or just kind of a middle finger to, you know, whatever culture they're trying to give a middle finger to. Because it's still it's still playing by the same gender binaries that we're trying to escape. Right, yeah. right. Right? God, so I, I've tried to limit my references to God as a he or a himself, and I, I just substitute God or Godself. Mm. Um, now, I'm sure I slip up all the time, but consciously I'm trying to limit those just because it's impossible to use the masculine pronouns without... Um, without sort of subtly um, underpinning the idea that God is some sort of gendered male, masculine figure, right? right. So when you have somebody like Piper or his brothers arguing that, that Christianity was designed to have a masculine feel, um, and he's made that, he said that uh, right. very much so. Um, I, 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 this is one of the places where I think um, his views do incredible harm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so, you know, with you, Bonnie, so, so I would do de- it for, for me, theologically, of course, I'd have no problem with it. It depends on, on, and how, and what we're doing with that information. Yeah. If the goal is just to shock and provoke and whatever, uh, uh okay. I, I would say there are better uses of that.
1: Or better um, ways to get someone to think about it.
0: Absolutely absolutely why why do i want to contribute to gender wars right why do i even in even in the the corrective teaching why would i want to contribute to that so i've tried to back off of masculine pronouns but that doesn't mean i just rush straight to feminine pronouns just Mm -hmm. just to make a point for for me it is um what what god does with adam and eve and and how they represent his nature that answers for me forever the question Right. Of are there feminine aspects? Of course! Oh my lord, yes! And it's yeah. just dumb. It is so freaking dumb that we even ask the question this way. Even asking the question this way is is it has been to admit our failure mm-hmm. to say that like are there feminine aspects to? I mean, what? Where where did femininity come from for crying right, out loud? Right.
1: If it's not right? if it's not from there, then where is it? Yeah. Well, I mean, exactly. it's so
0: idiotic.
1: Right? <laughs> it is i'm not taking i'm not going to take that personal since i asked you the question but...
0: <laughs> no, no 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 you were asking I'm how totally we feel about kidding. it I'm,
1: you know i'm kidding Bonnie, you know, that I'm question kidding.
0: is dumb dumb, it's
1: dumb. no you know i'm kidding but um to her point what she says exactly what you're saying is if we don't highlight those things yeah then i think we miss it and we also then read it through only a male lens and like what we've been believed. So like, so this was like a huge moment for me because, okay, I'm reading Ezekiel 37
0: Dry Bones, right? Like we do.
1: As one does. (laughs) And I'm reading it in the Hebrew. Of course you are. Like we do. And um, I like, I've always been fascinated by that passage, but I've always Mm. read it as like this the, the the point that stuck out is like he raises up this like militant army and mm. it's always been. So it's been a fascinating passage, but hard for me to understand and connect to. Mm. And so then I'm reading it and the passage is so interesting because it talks about Yahweh and the spirit it talks mm-hmm. about both. And for Yahweh, it always uses the text always uses masculine mm-hmm. pronouns, but for the spirit, mm-hmm. always feminine.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And so then I was like, OK, If we read it then that way, the so like what she was saying, like when you said, I've never read the that one passage from the um, perspective of the eunuch, right? Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. if we read it, not just from this perspective of this masculine entity that's creating more masculine entities, (laughs) like go and fight Mm -hmm. war, which obviously part of it, and that was part of the culture and part of it's there. But that language of like putting bones on the flesh and all this Mm -hmm. stuff, like... Knitting when, together. In knitting together. That's womb imagery. That's so Correct. different. And yeah. then it's this God that's taking care of his people yeah. and holding them as a mother does. And it's like, it just changes it mm-hmm. in a way that is like, oh my gosh. And I felt so excited and also so grieved because we've mm-hmm. missed that, mm-hmm. I think, so much. Mm-hmm. And if you are a person, like she says, that's been abused and so males in power are hard for you, yeah. then this feminine in- imagery has to be talked about. Absolutely. Because it's a way that we can approach God and not feel all these triggers because of our trauma.
0: Yeah. And that's that's exact. So her, her subtitle of her book was Reading the Bible with Survivors.
1: Mm, yeah, exactly. And
0: that, that's exactly what you're saying, Bonnie. And that and that was the thing that, that struck me most. Mm-hmm about what an impoverished reading I have if I'm just sitting in my room. And, and I, I listen, I want to encourage people to study and meditate on and practice the scriptures, absolutely. But the, it, it's, so Western indivi- it, it's so Western and individualized and consumeristic.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Like you miss, and I just keep learning this over and over and over. And, the, and what you're bringing, Bonnie, is exactly that point. That to not read the text with women, to not read the text mm-hmm. with people of color, to not read the text with uh, survivors of abuse, like there, there's just a whole, there's just so many layers to the thing. I mean, one of the stories she spends time on in the book is the uh, the um, the Levite's concubine at the end of Judges. Mm. It's um, it is it is one of it, it. If you would highlight for me a picture of like my old testament confusion it's that story mm. it's this concubine that's gang raped i mean it's just it's it is uh, it, it's horrific and um and but i've always read it from the why is this included in the canon i never read it from the perspective of somebody who'd been gang raped or mm. somebody who'd been like uh, who'd been treated like that and and I'm sitting there going, oh my lord! I mean, you'd read it, you you just read it so differently. Mm-hmm. And so I think, Bonnie, you know, the reason why the, the Tim Shell stuff um, is interesting, and the reason why I think people are, are responding, um, you know, to your to your leadership voice and your teaching voice, um, is that there's just so much stuff that's missed when those voices are absent and we're illustrating, yeah. Oh my goodness, how much broader this stuff actually turns out to be.
1: Yeah. Well, the, the, in a story of five people, there's five stories. <laughs> I mean, there's five perspectives, there's five voices, you know, but we're we really are used to hearing one.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm, mm. Mm. And, and that's where Gombas, you know, Gombas has me in this in between place because what, what the way I was taught and i still believe that there is when you go to a text there's a there's an intent behind the text there's some mm-hmm. sort of intent behind the text that, that 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 was inspired for some reason or provoked by some reason and so a lot of the work you're doing is to try to find um as best you can what it what what's the what was the what was the what was paul's intent when he wrote about head coverings you know what right, was, right. when paul said women be silent like What's he mean? What's yeah. he mean there? Um, and and I've always resisted the kind of what does this sort of mean to me thing, but but there's the there's this thing that you and others are bringing and Gamba sort of highlighted too, of it's not it's not a what does this verse mean to mean kind of thing, but it's a I can't even approach this text without dealing first with a whole bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. That, that it pulls out of me, mm-hmm. you know what I mean
1: yes, that's a great way of putting it yeah and
0: i didn't i didn't realize because when I read the text it doesn't it doesn't do that to me it doesn't i don't sit there and go, oh my goodness, look at the way that women here were right right I'm thinking, oh, look at the way that they're advancing i'm not um, I'm not reading it I'm looking for the author's intent but i'm 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 thinking i'm reading it without a bunch of a bunch of stuff that's coming out of my soul right Mm -hmm. but if you're a sexual abuse survivor and you're reading some of what's written in the old testament before you can even get to intent or any of that stuff right i mean how do you how do you read some of that Mm -hmm. without i know i'm rambling but um i'm I'm trying to talk this out bonnie in front of you and and tim too but bonnie probably more so because she has glasses on (laughs) <laughs> and you didn't wear your tweed. So I frankly <laughs> so disappointed Tim. I want a picture. I, I also, would love.
1: I think it needs me on Instagram. The tweed. Yeah, I
0: really. That's what I'm thinking. I would love, Tim, if you put your glasses, oh, on, glasses sorry, on and and put the tweed on. Would you please would you please Instagram that? I would love to see it and make it my profile pic. <laughs> then I'm definitely going to do it. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, so anyway, Bonnie, that's that's how I'm hearing what you're saying.
1: Yeah. Is no, that I think here's
0: you're right. here's here's Ezekiel. Yep, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead.
1: No, I wasn't saying anything. I was just agreeing with you.
0: I was agreeing with you. Here's here's Ezekiel, and here's the way I approach it. Um and and I would know that there's feminine imagery in there, but that mm-hmm. but that wouldn't be elevated. In my imagination to, oh, I got to highlight this.
1: Oh, interesting. Because I'm,
0: I'm rummaging around for, well, why is this in here? And oh, then all okay. of a sudden what you're saying is, no, 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 that, that actually is one of the, at least in, in terms of application, that's one of the central things that needs to be mentioned, is that, the, is that what's being done here is literally a, a, a re-wooming mm-hmm. of Israel. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, I I had no point other than just to process this, that out loud. No, I just, and
1: I think it's so good because I love that she said that of going like there are so, I mean, I just think all of us would do well to look at the text from the different voices and the different angles. It's Mm -hmm. like a, it's a muscle. You have to stretch it though. I think it takes intentionality for sure.
0: Can we get away from exercise analogies and metaphors? Just
1: <laughs> sorry. As a general
0: rule on the podcast because, but no, I think you're absolutely right. I think you're absolutely right. And and so, how do you work that out in a church environment is a super interesting question, right? Because nobody's yeah. doing that. No, at least that I know, nobody's doing that, which is the super compelling stuff. Yeah. So, I don't know, Tim. Tim, back to you, buddy. What else you got?
2: Um, well, I've got about a thousand questions now about reading the Bible, but I think that's going to be a different conversation. Mm. The last note that I wrote down that was near the end of what she was talking about with how the next hundred years of Christianity is being born in Brazil and mm-hmm. Kenya or in, in places that are just not here. And I yeah. thought that was really interesting and I wanted to hear what you guys thought about that because I think that's a fascinating idea. Do it, Bonnie.
1: I I just... I also thought it was fascinating I thought it made sense just in terms of when she said like um, he identifies with the people that are on the bottom of the power structure um, but I also think that probably that notion is really shocking to a lot of people because our American mm-hmm. minds tend to just believe we're the best and we're at the forefront and we're at the whatever and we well, might be and but that
2: Christianity is ours here yeah
1: yes belongs to us and he's our God um, and we might be at at some things, but um, it would make sense that the way of the kingdom wasn't going that way.
0: Amen. And there, there was a book I read a long time ago. It's one of my favorites. Oh, we had somebody ask us for our favorite books. We need to cover that someday. Um, it was called Powers, Weakness, and the Tabernacling of God. Wow. I mean, dude, right? And this was like, I don't know, late 90s, maybe and um her name's marva dawn and she's one Um, of my favorite
1: i interviewed her once you
0: know bonnie you don't (laughs) you just don't have to keep doing that
1: i was for this old job (laughs) i had and then (laughs) she's the nicest okay bonnie okay bonnie
0: okay (laughs) we've not interviewed her okay I just want to make a book reference. That's all I was trying to do.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry. She holds a sock on yeah. my heart. <laughs> it's so nice. Oh, boy. Anyway, go ahead.
0: Oh, well, thank you. Um, Who's
1: Marva Don? I don't know who that is.
0: Yes. Anyway, <laughs> her, her basic argument was God tabernacles among people. And again, tabernacling is a reference to what God did in the Old Testament when he, his presence, his tangible presence would rest among people. That God tabernacles um, among people in their weakness, not in their strength, and um, and this this is a massively important theological point that totally shifted, and is still shifting so much of how I think about what it is we're doing. Um, her argument is when you when you look at God's choosing in the Old Testament, God's always choosing the unlikely; He's always choosing the the lowest, right? Mm-hmm. He goes to, um, to uh, what's his name? Gilead. Is that his name? Mm-hmm. And, um, and says, Hey, you're going to be my deliverer. And, and he's like, man, my, my tribe is the last in Israel and I am the least in my family. And my clan is the weakest. I mean, he just, he's like, here's this resume of weakness. And God's like, perfect. And then, Hey, let's go <laughs> to battle against however many Dozens of thousands against uh, of Midianites, and God keeps saying, "No, you have too many Israelites, too many Israelites, too many Isra- Israelites." I don't want you to think you did this. And that is so. I mean, that so so. Why does God choose an old barren couple to give birth to a nation? Right? Why mm. does He always choose the second child rather than the first? Why is He all? I mean, He's always doing this. Why? Because He tabernacles in weakness. Mm. Well, you get to Paul's writing and this is where she did her, her thesis. And I know, I hear she's very nice. Um, she's a great interview. I've heard that. Um, but, but when Paul talks about in our weakness, um, God's power is made perfect. She actually provides a, an amazing theological and exegetical argument that that verse is mistranslated and it rather should be read, um, God's, uh, power is made perfect when ours is brought to its end. Mm. And, um, and so her, her point is that God has more need of our weakness than our strength. What the American church and what the Western church has done has been to think that it's our strength that's needed. And so our killer sermons, our incredibly charismatic personalities, our next great small group series, our sweet social justice program, I mean, whatever it is, Right. Is the thing that's that's really going to connect people to the church Mm -hmm. and with the spirit, where the spirit moves is among those who aren't impressed with such things, who don't have such resources. Right. Um, And and so from a like theological perspective, uh, I absolutely celebrate and I'm not shocked, but I celebrate the fact that the the center of the kingdom is no longer the United States of America, Mm -hmm. if it ever was. Right, right. I mean, maybe we thought it was, but
1: and it never was. Right, yeah. Who knows?
0: Right, but among, um, um, uh, you know, and you hear this from imperial missionaries that have, you know, done week-long mission trips, and they come back and oh, they were so joyful. <laughs> um, and our affluence is just making us sick, right? I mean, it's just, and so I love. Maybe I'm rambling too much, but I love. Um, and my best. I don't. I, I mean, I think this is true for for you guys, but I will just speak for me. My best stuff has always come out of struggling with depression and anxiety, having a child with special needs, uh, being overweight and hating it, mm. uh, like out of the struggle, right? And those are just tiny struggles, right? Those aren't even. Those aren't even like on the scale of struggle. Those aren't even massive things, in my eyes. Um, and yet they've formed this crucible out of which comes like God's power with such a difference than when I think I'm in my element, when I think I'm clicking in all cylinders and when I'm, you know what I mean? Yeah. Absolutely. And so, and so the reason God's spirit, if, if God's spirit, if we can say it this way, uh, God's spirit has sort of moved on. Uh, is because we're just totally taken with American. And that's why we are overcompensating in America. It's why we have to entertain people. It's why we have to keep topping ourselves with sermon, you know, cliches and like tricks and, ooh, let me ride my motorcycle up on the stage. And that's amazing for Father's Day. <laughs> just like, come on, man. Come on. Because because <laughs> we, we just sincerely believe Jesus isn't enough. We just don't. We just don't right. believe it. None of our churches actually believe, and again, I'm speaking hyperbolically, but we don't believe Jesus is actually enough, right? Right. Because even you know, I, I mean, if if you would just say, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna open the church, we're gonna open the community night and just pray," okay, cool. Um, you got five people. If you say, "Hey, we're gonna open the church and and freak in this, you know, Christian celebrities coming in," bam, you have thousands. Yeah, and um, I don't know. There's just I, so I, I'm sorry I got triggered uh, into this whole line of thought. But when I heard that and read that from from her and her book and then heard it on the interview, I just sit and I go, "Yep, that's exactly right." As it should be. Like yeah. I think that's the discipline on the American church. Yeah, is is the fact that God has just simply said, "Well, great if if you're so stoked on this stuff, well then fantastic, go for it, yeah. go for it." Love yeah. it. be get your, get your dopamine Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. your emotional rush, and then I'll be over here doing this incredibly real stuff among um, people and nations you haven't even heard of. Well, I think it's America.
2: interesting because I grew up in a church that did a lot of the mission trips. So, you know, every year in high school for spring break, you go to Mexico and build houses and run a VBS and stuff. So when she said that, I was like, man, wouldn't it be interesting if we did these mission trips where we took – High school kids and stuff to these other countries, and then just learned and listened mm. and watched and like discipled our kids in these other countries where their struggles are totally different, and see the way that Jesus is moving in these totally different ways would be a fascinating idea.
0: I've always wondered about doing reverse mission trips, where we would host a church from Colombia or Brazil. They Like they would come to us and teach us, yeah. Mm -hmm. you know what i mean i mean like like how much would it offend the american christian psyche that we were now the object of missions yeah you know what i mean dang oh i love it i love it so no there's absolutely something there absolutely something there so have i rambled too much no i think it's great bonnie i think it's great yeah. You know, okay. Well, both of those were forced, so I won't.
1: <laughs> no, no, I loved it. I thought it was great. There's so you. much to think about.
2: There is so much. I feel like this is a, a multi-hour conversation.
0: Well, it's going on that way. I know. <laughs> our, our, our our interviews are longer and longer.
1: Every time. <laughs> it's good.
0: Well, just it's good the, content. Uh, I hope. To react to. Oh my goodness! Yes, 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 yes. All right. Any last words, Bonnie Lewis?
1: I do. I have one last word. I just want to remind everybody that if you have been abused or you are being abused um, to get help and to seek someone out because your voice matters and um, to echo what she said, that's not God's desire for you. It doesn't matter what anyone's Amen. told you. So,
0: And it's not your fault.
1: Yeah. yeah. Amen.
0: That's good, yeah. Bonnie. That's a good word to end on. Um, and if 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 there's anything that we as a community can do, um, you can always email us at hello mm-hmm. at vox and um, we can see what we can do to be helpful. But you're certainly, man, the the, the I can't even imagine what that would feel like or be like. So, mm-hmm. if if there's anything we could do, even you know, just praying like crazy, we'd be glad to do it.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Anything, Tim, for from you. No, nope.
2: I think that that's a great place to end. Although I think that this week more than others, we, we need a blessing.
0: So yes. Close with that. Yeah, absolutely. Bonnie, have you learned the, have you learned it yet? Nope. Have you memorized it yet?
1: No, I always get it wrong. Oh, all
0: right. All right. So your, <laughs> your homework no. is to memorize it in Hebrew.
1: Oh my gosh. Dream on. That's Dude, Seth happening. Erie's
0: quoting the Shema on the podcast. <laughs> I'm just saying, what do you bring in? What do you bring to the table? A
1: lot, okay?
0: <laughs> no, 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 no. Of course, I of course that. I mean, is chip. I mean, does chip. You know, like recite the Hebrew alphabet yet, or what? I mean, I'm just I saying. No,
1: there is there's a uh, there's a line in the sand. We've had a few. <laughs> we've had a few poor kid ministry experiences, and we are having to do some work
0: there. Oh boy, isn't that true? Is yeah. that That's <laughs> so, that's another that's another topic that's another right there. Topic, yeah. All right. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you, and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance to you, and in these days may He give us peace. Amen. 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 All right. Till next time, friends. Thank you.